the value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. Welcome to this 91 Investment Views 2023 podcast. With me is Sahil Matani, strategist at 91 in London, and also Philip Saunders, director of the Investment Institute at 91. Gentlemen, the title of this podcast is Macro Global Outlook 2023. I mean, this must change every day, Sahil. Yeah, well, I wonder, because I think the story since last year has been a policy tightening cycle, right, since late last year. And what we've seen this year is a process of normalization in which valuations have structurally come down, but you haven't seen the tightening really filter through to economic growth, the employment outlook or earnings. So I think we're in this process of normalization and the Fed is likely to have to tighten monetary conditions more and for a bit longer than the market probably currently discounts now. It's very interesting because the first comment that you kindly sent me to guide me through this podcast is 2023 outlook, a time of culmination. Philip, what does that mean? Well, I think the sense of it is that we think that a series of things are coming together over the course of next year that are both structural and also cyclical. So by structural, I mean that we've been in an extended period after the global financial crisis of zero rates, of quantitative easing, of loose monetary policy. And that persisted for far longer than would normally have been the case. But now that really culminated in the very aggressive monetary action taken to try and address the negative shock of the COVID constituted internationally. And that plus the COVID impact on supply chains and so forth has tended to result in obviously inflation taking off. And at first, central banks thought this was transitory. And now they realize that there is a more persistent dynamic to it. And so hence, you've seen this dramatic change in monetary policy, particularly on the part of the Fed, which has caused monetary conditions to start to tighten significantly. And that has been reflected in, you know, initially at the margin with weakness in emerging market assets, even as US assets continue to or particularly on the equity side, it continued to go up. This most recent year has seen the Fed obviously shift. It was sort of still engaging in QE in the second quarter of this year. So this about turn in policy and this recognition that inflation was potentially becoming a very serious problem. And so the Fed has basically returned to, if you've taken a leaf out of the book of Volcker, And they now have led the charge in terms of tightening policy in the developed world. Internationally, emerging markets have already, you know, they understand inflation and they were tightening before that. So tightening monetary conditions start to squeeze asset prices that have been inflated by loose monetary conditions. And that's what we're seeing playing out in the weakness in equity markets, albeit with some strong bear market rallies, the weakness in bond markets and Bitcoin collapses as well. Uh, So, Hill, given what Philip's just said uh, with these bear market rallies, one of which was quite spectacular recently, let's talk about developed government bonds. They've also rallied quite nicely along with the equities, short term, that is. And you talk about a new interest rate regime, but bond valuations are beginning to look attractive. Now, this was written before the latest US inflation data point. Does this reinforce that last comment that I made that you sent me? Bond valuations are beginning to look attractive. I think that's right. And it's especially looking attractive in areas where 
you are starting to see the economy roll over. So one of the premises behind our view is that the US is much less interest rate sensitive than the rest of the world relative to the dollar block, relative to Scandinavian economies. And so the US is probably going to be one of the last countries to have a recession. The other economies are more likely to be in recession territory earlier. And in the context in which growth and inflation will be impacted negatively, that makes defensive assets like government bonds interesting. So, you know, there are selective opportunities in bond markets where house prices are very extended. As for the U.S. itself, I think there was a comment from Governor Waller the other day of the Fed saying, you know, we need to decide how much tightening we need to have. Because, yes, the last inflation reading was marginally more positive than the previous ones. Yes, inflation may roll over. And, you know, there is a lot of tightening baked in the system. But we do have also the specter of these second round effects in the wage market, in price setting. And that is what worries the Fed and will probably keep them tighter for longer. So at the moment, to put some numbers around it, you know, the markets are projecting a 5% peak by mid next year for the US, followed by a gradual deceleration to you know, 4% on the Fed funds rate by the end of the year. I think our base case would be probably a bit more hawkish than that. So we'd expect that to stay tighter for longer. Philip, I know you are a very close watcher of currencies. Have we seen the peak dollar, do you think? Because we were mired below par. I use the euro dollar as my reference point. Euro dollar below par. And then after that inflation figure recently, away we went. The US dollar falling, the euro strengthening. Have we seen peak dollar, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are certainly approaching peak dollar. You know, at its high point this year, it was sort of back to levels last seen in the 1980s. And so the atmosphere gets a bit thin. But in many senses, the dollar was the only game in town because investors were risk averse. The US economy can withstand rises in interest rates much better than lots of other economies. And the momentum behind growth in the US, you know, has remained pretty robust. I mean, obviously, some sectors have weakened a bit, but by and large, you know, it's a super tanker and it takes something pretty significant to change course. So I think that the dollar is in the process of topping, but it might well have a, you know, particularly if interest rate expectations flip again, because we've seen, you know, enormous volatility in bond markets in terms of interest rate expectations. We could quite easily see some more of that. So I think that the dollar is in the process of peaking. We may not have seen the peak for this cycle, uh, but it's clearly an overvalued territory. And when the US economy does show signs of material weakness, then I suspect that the dollar will weaken on a more sustained basis. Credits is to the fore at the moment. You say there's value emerging, but deteriorating corporate fundamentals represent another hurdle. So on the one side, you've got macroeconomics, global macroeconomics. On the other side, corporates. What do you mean by deteriorating corporate fundamentals? Is it a lagging indicator when it comes to macro? The corporates come second after the deterioration and then possible resuscitation of the global macro scene. A rather clumsy question, but I think you've probably got the gist of it. Yeah, absolutely, Lindsay. So what we mean is that corporate credit spreads have widened quite significantly, but are well below the kind of levels that were reached in past recessions. 
recessionary periods. Yes. So we've seen a dramatic increase in interest rates on a nominal basis, but spreads are below levels that we've seen historically. Now, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but we suspect that we haven't got a sufficient risk premium in prices yet, in spreads yet, in order to counter the risks of the impact of a recession and the impact of recession on default rate expectations. So we think it's right to be somewhat cautious, but we think that value is beginning to appear in a meaningful way because the move in interest rates has been very significant. You're seeing yields you know, above 10% in nominal terms, and that coupled with our expectation that inflation will eventually come down pretty significantly leads us to think that you know, medium to longer term value is there even now. So here's emerging market debt. For once, it hasn't been as volatile as perhaps the developed market debt has been. It's behaved itself. And I think one of the reasons is that emerging market central banks started raising interest rates before the developed world has. I think emerging market assets have done a lot better this year than you might have expected if you were to say we were in a historic tightening cycle. And I think, as you say, it's partly because they've had you know, pretty good macro fundamentals relative to history. So, you know, more professionalized central banks, floating currencies, less FX funding risk, lower debt to GDP, and so on. I think at this moment, probably the hard currency denominated debt, which is a spread asset, you know, relative to as a derivative of US credit markets, you know, I think that is probably interesting, given where yields are at. And, you know, on the local currency side, yields, as you say, have the asset class has done relatively well. And parts of that market are actually more defensive relative to what they used to be. And the currencies are cheap. Inflation in those key emerging markets are already rolling over. So I think that will continue to be an attractive asset. Philip, what about equities? They seem to be getting used to the prospect of weaker growth or even recession in some countries. Do you think it's already discounted by market participants? I think what we've seen to date, really, particularly after the recent rally, is equity markets adjusting to the rise in interest rates rather than the prospect of weaker earnings as a result of weaker growth. And it's less so in some markets where there's more of a valuation discount. But certainly looking at the US market, again, I think that next year, we would expect earnings to decline by 15, 20%, maybe more than that in the case of a hard landing. And we don't think that that is currently reflected in valuations. And we also think that valuations don't reflect the enduring nature of the shift in the interest rate regime that we anticipate. So let's look at commodities now, because they've been all over the place. It was a few years ago when you could have thrown a dart at a commodities board and a couple of years later, you would have made money. It's changed very much now. There's some sectors doing well, others doing not so well. You asked the question, will the capital cycle trump the macro cycle? What do you mean by that? This is the salient question for commodities, right? Because commodities typically don't do as well in a recession. But this is a cycle in which the entire commodity complex has not had a huge amount of capital thrown at it over the last decade. And as a result, it is relatively well set up for a world in which you are starting to see significant supply constraints in areas such as green metals. And so the question is, does the negative recession impulse for commodities outweigh this positive capital cycle trend? 
And I think the jury remains out at the moment. A lot of commodities are backwardated, but definitely valuations are discounting a significant slowdown in the commodity sector. And as a result, that is potentially quite attractive, even in the context of the historical acceleration in fossil fuel demand destruction as a result of the Ukraine crisis, particularly if you have a scenario of China reopening. You know, I can see a situation in which a lot of hard commodities, soft commodities do quite well in that environment. I want to end this now with medium term thematic trends. And Philip, you start here. I've got three points here. Tightening monetary policy is going to constrain fiscal policy going forward. That's the first one. Secondly, supply chains will continue to evolve in a regional direction. Finally, last point, we are seeing an historical acceleration in fossil fuel demand destruction as a result of the Ukraine crisis, particularly in Europe. Philip, start with tightening monetary policy is going to constrain fiscal policy going forward. What do you mean? Well, I mean that the level of government debt at the moment, particularly after the response to COVID, is high across the developed world. And that might have been fine against the background of sort of continuing incredibly low interest rates in the zero interest rate environment. If we are witnessing a reset in the sort of normal interest rate level, i.e. we're going back to a sort of pre global financial crisis period in terms of, you know, interest rate, short to short and long term interest rate levels, then the additional cost to governments of more debt is going to bite more given the aggregate level. So that then puts pressure on governments to raise taxes, which also can obviously have a negative impact on growth. So in a way, We've been through a period where governments weren't really constrained because inflation remained low, which meant that central banks could keep policy very loose. In the new interest rate regime, if we're right, then tougher fiscal decisions are going to have to be made. And we think that the sort of pressure on governments to support growth and to support social and healthcare spending are going to remain pretty intense, particularly given the demographic characteristics that we're looking at going forward. So, supply chains will continue to evolve in a regional direction. What do you mean? There's going to be a divergence between certain countries, certain regions? Is that what you're saying? Lindsay, this is a continuation of an argument, you know, we've held on to since the COVID pandemic broke, when there was this great big concern about deglobalization, which we thought was a slightly breathless characterization of what was actually going on, which was regionalized supply chains were going to become even more regionalized. So even today, the majority of trade is not done between, say, the US and China, but it's done you know, between China and Asia and the US and the Americas and so on. We think that will continue. And to the extent that there is deglobalization, it will actually be about separating Chinese supply chains from the rest of the world. So, you know, whereas today less than 5% of Apple's products are made outside of China, by 2025, the figure is estimated to be around 25%. And this is not just geopolitics, it's also a focus on decarbonization, focus on friendshoring, onshoring, improving supply chain resilience. So we think that will continue. That is something that was probably overdue and is not really deglobalization. It's just another form of globalization. Fun question. I don't know who wants to take it or if you want to take it jointly. You say, finally, we are seeing 
An historical acceleration in fossil fuel demand destruction as a result of the Ukraine crisis, particularly in Europe. Now, I would come up with a couple of phrases now. Every cloud has a silver lining and it's an ill wind that blows nobody good. So, in fact, in the future, for the future of the energy industry, maybe the Ukraine crisis which has been horrible, might shock people into doing things differently. I'll take this one, perhaps, Lindsay. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. It's just what the IEA has pointed out. I think it's now conventional wisdom that the global energy crisis has turbocharged the shift away from fossil fuels. You're seeing solar capacity climbing you know, 18% higher than expected by 2030, wind 14%. I think you're starting to see individual national pieces of legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, prioritizing green investment. You're starting to see historic levels of demand destruction. So, you know, gas consumption of households and businesses in Germany are running at 75 percent of 2021 levels. So I think that is dramatic. That will continue. However, as the IEA acknowledges, there is a huge amount of shortage for key resources to meet the energy transition, including lithium and copper. So you're going to see what the ECB's Isabel Schnabel calls greenflation in addition to fossilflation, right? So fossil fuel prices will remain high at the same time that you will see inflation from an acceleration in green energy spending. Sahil, thank you so much for your analysis and your time. Sahil Matani is a strategist at 91 in London, and he was joined by Philip Saunders, director of 91's Investment Institute, also in London. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.